Will you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, Matthew 7, and the guys have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back if you need one, get their attention, and they'll pass one of those Bibles on to you so that you can look at our passage in Matthew 7. And you see at the end of Matthew 7, verses 28 and 29 that we'll be considering, those are obviously the last verses in that chapter, and that chapter concludes the Sermon on the Mount, which we've been looking at for uh, several months together. We will have one more sermon from the beginning of Matthew chapter 8 uh, related to the Sermon on the Mount next week, and then that will conclude that uh, series of messages. And we will uh, begin a series four weeks in the small book of Philemon in your New Testament. Two weeks after that, I'll be gone one week in between. And then we'll have Easter, April 5th, April 12th, we'll start a series in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. Today, Matthew 7 and verses 28 and 29. After this hour, we will have, as we do each week, what we call Cafe Community. And during Cafe Community, we always offer you coffee. Some of us have already had some, but we really shouldn't have any because, according to experts, caffeine will kill you. And it accounts in part for the shorter life expectancy of Americans. One person put it this way, experts say we drink too much caffeine, but the Brazilians drink tons of caffeine and they live longer than Americans. Other experts say it's too much fat in our diet, but in Mexico they eat all sorts of fat and they live longer than Americans. Still other experts say it's too many carbs, but the Italians eat carbs at every meal and they live longer than Americans. Some have identified alcohol as the culprit, but the French and the Germans drink like fish, and they live longer than Americans. And so this guy concluded, there's only one thing that we can conclude from all of this. Apparently, it's speaking English that kills you. <laughs> Do you know, don't you grow weary of all of the so-called experts? Apparently... You can be an expert simply if you write a book or an article or you get on television. And we have them for everything. And they're wrong so much of the time. A few years ago, the American Enterprise Institute published an article warning about the perils of expert opinion, focusing in that particular article on experts on environmental issues. The author says, When I was in high school, the big environmental panic was a, quote, looming ice age. Consider this for excerpt from an article called The Cooling World in the April 28, 1975 edition of Newsweek. That article said, There are ominous signs that the Earth's weather patterns have begun to change dramatically. The evidence has now begun to accumulate so massively that meteorologists are hard-pressed to keep up. Meteorologists are almost unanimous that the resulting famines could be catastrophic. A survey completed last year reveals a drop in average ground temperatures in the northern hemisphere. The present decline has taken the planet about a sixth of the way toward the ice age average. Climatologists are pessimistic that political leaders will take any positive action to compensate, like melting the Arctic ice cap by covering it with black soot. The longer the planners delay, the more difficult will they find it to cope with climatic change once the results become grim reality. The author goes on to say, Personally, I'm glad those dithering politicians 
didn't rush to spread soot across the Arctic. Because just one generation later, trendy opinion had done a complete turnabout and decided the real threat was not global cooling, but global warming. The very same magazine now prints reams of articles depicting the Earth as an overheating greenhouse, like this anecdote from another Newsweek article just a few years ago. It said this, In early August 2004, the remote Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in northern Alaska was gripped with unseasonably mild weather, 20-degree afternoons, ravenous mosquitoes past prime insect season, and dry tundra in the typically swampy lowlands of the coastal plain. These may be early signs of global warming. Now, in citing all of that, I'm not making a political statement about global warming, or as it's called now, climate change. I'm simply illustrating the fickleness of so-called experts. We have them tell us who won the election before the polls close, only to be found wrong. We have them tell us what the weather will be on Wednesday, only to be found wrong. And sometimes the experts' errors are deadly, like failure to track intelligence clues of an impending attack. Now, I'm not saying that we should ignore advice and eat carbs and fat and be addicted to caffeine, and I'm certainly not saying that we should drink. But we should be cautious of the counsel to which we listen. The Bible tells us this. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books there is no end. Of much study, and much study wearies the body. The reason that there are so many books and so many opinions is because, friends, there is only one true expert. Only one who has full authority and full knowledge and does not have to resort to quoting others or depending on fallible sources. When Jesus finished his famous Sermon on the Mount, his hearers knew that they had just heard from that kind of expert, one for whom it could be said in the words of the title of this message that's at the top of your outline. If you'll take a look at that, it's inserted in your program. They had just heard from that kind of expert, one for whom it could be said, no footnotes required. He didn't have to cite other sources or to give the basis for the opinions that he expressed. And that's why the last two verses of the sermon say this, verse 28. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Let's ask God to help us as we look at his word. Father, we thank you for allowing us to be here yet another Lord's Day, to open your word and to see the wisdom that you have for us therein. We thank you that you have given us a desire to be here among your people, to encourage and to be encouraged, but to learn of you and to be further conformed into the image of Jesus. And we thank you for giving us your word as our indispensable aid in that process. We ask you to help us have open hearts and clear minds As we consider what you have for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In that outline that you should have in front of you, 
I have a couple of major points that I want you to see from these two verses at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. The first is this. Jesus' teaching has unusual effect. Jesus' teaching has unusual effect. Verse 28 says, The crowds were amazed at Jesus' teaching. Now most of you know that the New Testament was written in the Greek language. And the Greek word that's translated amazed in this passage is used 13 times in the New Testament. Ten of those 13 times, it refers to people's response to Jesus' teaching. One other time, it's used of response to another biblical writer's teaching, that of the Apostle Paul. And then the two other times, it's used of what Jesus did rather than what he said. And on those two occasions, people's response to what Jesus did, using the same word to describe it, illustrates the intensity of the reaction to Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Imagine a man who had never spoken a word. He had never heard a word. Because he had never heard a word, he could not speak. He lived his life in silence, groping, stumbling through life because he could not communicate. He came to Jesus, and the Bible tells us that Jesus touched this man's ear and said simply, Be opened. The Bible says that immediately his ears were opened and his tongue was loosed and he began to speak plainly. He didn't even have to learn the language. And here's what the Bible says about the reaction of those who witnessed that miracle. People were overwhelmed with amazement. Same word as in our passage where in verse 28 it says the people were amazed at Jesus' teaching. The people were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And again, in another passage, the Bible says this. The next day, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. He experiences convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. Then it goes on to say, even while the boy was coming, he experienced a convulsion. But Jesus healed the boy and gave him back to his father, and they were all, again, same word, amazed at the greatness of God. And in the documents outside the Bible, but written during the same period that this word was used, in context that referred to being overwhelmed by fright or seized with panic, is the way that word was used in extra-biblical sources. They were amazed, says verse 28. And that Greek word translated amazed literally means they were struck out of their senses. One commentator said it means they were dumbfounded. In other words, Jesus blew their minds by what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus got the crowd's attention with his teaching. But friends, hear this. Their astonishment says nothing about their own heart commitment. One can have his attention arrested momentarily, even weekly, as you hear a sermon, and yet not be moved to heart change. The Bible speaks often of the fickleness of the crowds that followed Jesus. They would laud him on one day and revile him the next. Friend, you can be amazed at the Bible as a book and still not be changed as a person. 
Years ago, Saturday Night Live, okay, I'm going to give you a Saturday Night Live illustration. But they had a, a regular skit that poked fun at the overly committed football fan. In particular, they were poking fun at the fans of the Chicago Bears and their then coach, Mike Ditka. These guys would sit around and talk only about the Bears and their coach, even if they had to make stuff up to think about them. So one guy might say, all right, if it's the Russian army against the Bears, who would you take? And then the other guys would think only for a split second and say, the Bears. And they'd say, well, if it was the Russian army against Ditka, who would you take? They think only slightly longer, and all agreed. Ditka. If it's the Russian army against Ditka with one arm behind his back, that's a little tougher. They'd stroke their chins, think for a moment, and then the verdict was unanimously rendered. Ditka. In one of those episodes, as the guys are engaging in this colossal waste of time, pondering the latest inane question about their team and eating what rabid football fans eat, stuff that's sure to kill you, one of the guys starts to grab his chest, he goes down on a knee, and then falls down on the floor, and he looks for all the world like he's having a fatal heart attack. And the other guys get a puzzled and troubled look on their face. I mean, this seems to be an important event to them. But they're in the middle of something equally no more important. <laughs> they're talking about their team. But they do stop talking for a moment, and as they look upon their dying friend in bewilderment and astonishment, there's this pregnant pause for a few seconds, and then he gets up and he coughs a few times, and he says, I'm good. I think I just had a piece of kibasa stuck in an artery. After their momentary nudge from the mundane and the inane, the boys get back to what really matters to them and what they care about, the bears and Ditka. The crowds were astonished at Jesus' teaching. But that does not mean they were committed to Jesus. Many of them would go back to their routines and, though undoubtedly they would think about what they heard from time to time, their lives were not changed. Undoubtedly some were changed, but most are not, hear this, most are not when they hear the Word of God. And you could have come every week of this several-month series through the Sermon on the Mount and have not been changed a bit. What a very serious thing for us to think about. We started this series in the early part of 2014. And here we are in the early part of 2015, finishing this series. And I wonder how many of us are different people as a result. It's always the case when the Word of God is put forward, there is a mixed reaction. When the Apostle Paul gave a long and eloquent presentation of truth to a group of Greek philosophers in Athens, the Bible says at the end of that presentation, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And then it says, some of the people became followers and believed. Do you see that mixed reaction? Some scoff, some say, I'll come back for more. And others are truly changed people as a result. When Jesus finished this fam most famous of all sermons, the crowds were shocked, even if only momentarily. So what is the reason for this shock and awe that they experienced? Well, it certainly includes what Jesus taught. 
but it's primarily about how he taught. Notice what verse 29 says. Verse 29 says their amazement was because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So Jesus has unusual authority. But secondly, in your outline, Jesus' teaching has unique authority. His teaching has unusual authority, but it also has unique authority. Now, what's unique about the authority of Jesus' teaching? Well, first of all, I say in your outline, all other teachers possess derived authority. They have derived authority. Their authority is derivative, is sourced in, comes from someone or something else. All others have derived authority. The teachers of the law, the scribes, searched for precedents, claiming the support of famous names among the rabbis of days gone by. Their only authority lay in the authorities that they were constantly quoting. But in contrast to that, the crowd was amazed that someone could say, the things that Jesus said with such power and authority. Jesus not only had the authority to say them, he had the power to carry them out. He had the right, the authorization, the authority to say them. He had the power, that is the ability, to carry out what he says. And so Jesus didn't do what the scribes did. They merely quoted other people. And they were fallible. And they quoted other fallible people to back up what they said. Jesus said things on the basis of his own authority. And no one had ever seen such wisdom. And in this sermon, Jesus addressed every dimension of human life. And he discussed it in an economy of words that was breathtaking. No one had ever heard such deep insight about the law of God or the sinfulness of man. The listeners around Jesus had never heard such fearful warnings about judgment and about hell. They had never heard anyone confront the Jewish religious leaders the way that Jesus did. They were shocked that Jesus stood on his own authority and not on the authority of someone else. So Jesus' teaching was not like the teachers of the law, the scribes, but Jesus' teaching was also not like that of the prophets in the first part of your Bible that we call the Old Testament. Those prophets would commonly declare, thus says the Lord. But did you know Jesus never said that? Jesus never said, thus says the Lord. Instead, he often began, truly, truly, I say to you. He dared to speak in his own name with his own authority. Six times in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, truly, I say to you, or I tell you. Another six times in the Sermon on the Mount, he contrasts his teachings with the corruptions of God's law that had developed over centuries. He would say, as we saw back in chapter 5, you have heard it said, but I say to you. So Jesus' teaching was not like the scribes who quoted other people. It was not even like the prophets who spoke on behalf of God and said, thus says the Lord. You've heard me say this many times over the years, but the prophets spoke for God. But Jesus is the God about whom those prophets spoke. And so certain was Jesus of the truth and the validity of his teaching that he said in the verses just before these verses at the end of the sermon, back in verses 24 and 26 that we saw a few weeks ago, that human wisdom and human foolishness 
are to be assessed by people's reaction to what it was Jesus taught. Take a look at those verses again, verses 24 and 26. Everyone who hears these words of mine, verse 24, and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The issue is, what do you do with these words of mine? And Jesus says the only wise people are those who build their lives on his words by obeying. All others... By rejecting his teaching, Jesus says, are fools. Now why? Why can Jesus render that kind of verdict on his teaching as the dividing line for every person, wise or foolish? It depends on what it is you do with the teaching of Jesus. Do you ignore it or do you actually obey it? Well, here's why. Because unlike all other teachers who rely on secondary authority, all others have this derived authority. Other teachers have derived authority, but I say in your outline, Jesus has inherent authority. Jesus does not have derived authority. He has inherent authority. He has authority inherent in who he is. And because of who he is, he can speak and command as he does. And so who is Jesus then? Let's remind ourselves regarding who this Jesus is who can speak these words, I say to you, I tell you. I say in your outline, first of all, he has authority because he is God. He has authority because he is God. And you see this in the Sermon on the Mount. If you'll just look back at chapter 5, look back at chapter 5 and verse 11. Chapter 5 and verse 11. Jesus said in the same sermon, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Now notice these three words, because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, you're going to go forth, those of you who choose to follow me. And remember back in in verse 1 of chapter 5, the sermon was actually delivered to his first followers, his disciples. And the crowds just gathered around to listen, to listen in. And so there were some, indeed, who were going to follow him. And Jesus says, all of these things will be true of you. Blessed are you, and people are going to insult you and persecute you. And they're going to do all of this because of me. And this is just like what happened to the prophets before you. Now let's remember what happened with the prophets. The prophets in the first part of your Bible, in the Old Testament, before Jesus came to earth, were persecuted because of their devotion to God. And Jesus says here, just like they were persecuted because of their devotion to God, you will be persecuted because of your devotion to me. And so Jesus has this authority because he is God. And he understood, in fact, of course, that he is God. And when he says that in verses 11 and 12, he's making that very claim. When Jesus taught, he spoke as the one who he really is, God. In chapter 7 and verse 21, that again we saw a few weeks ago, notice verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, 
but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, when we looked at that passage a couple weeks ago, we saw that the word Lord was used in biblical times in a number of ways, including sometimes as simply a polite title like Sir. But it's often used in the Bible to refer to God. And that's how Jesus is using it in chapter 7 and verse 21. Because the context is when humans stand before the throne of judgment, that is God's judgment. And the one before whom they stand is none other than Jesus himself. And he equates, Jesus does, his lordship with doing the will of the Father. It says here in verse 21, Only the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. But in the book of Luke, the Bible records these words of Jesus in Matthew 7, 21, just slightly differently. Notice what it says in Luke. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Now, do you all see this? Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom, but only the ones who do the will of my Father in heaven. But Luke records those words as, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Do you see that he's equating the will of my Father in heaven with what it is that I say? Now, how does Jesus do that? He does that because, indeed, he is God. In the same breath, he says, if you want to enter the kingdom, you do the will of the Father, and if you want to enter the kingdom, you do my will. Jesus has inherent authority. Inherent authority because of who he is, and he is God. Secondly, he has inherent authority because he is Messiah. Messiah. Now, the word Messiah... Some of you have heard me say in the past, is from a Hebrew word, your Old Testament, first part of your Bible was written in Hebrew. And the Hebrew word Mashiach is translated with our English word Messiah. So when I say he has authority because he is Messiah, I'm referring to that Old Testament word that described this one who was going to come in the future and be all of the things that the Old Testament describes. The word Mashiach means the anointed one. And Jesus has authority because he is the Messiah, the anointed one. And in your New Testament, there is a, there is a Greek equivalent for that Hebrew Mashiach title. The Greek equivalent is Christos, Christ. It means the same thing as Messiah, the anointed one. So Jesus has authority because he is the Messiah, the anointed one, the one promised. He is the Christ. And so Christ is not his last name, Jesus Christ. He didn't come from the Christ family. Jesus is the Christ. It's a title, the anointed one, the Messiah. And the Old Testament predicted one who would come and among other things, this one who would come would establish David's throne forever, and he would rule as king. And in chapter 5, and I know I've had you turn the pages a few times, but bear with me. We're at the end of this, so I'm trying to summarize it. But in chapter 5 and verse 17, notice what Jesus says. Do not think that, and then see these words, I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus says, I have come. And when he says, I have come, he is pointing back to the one who was to come 
And now he is saying that one has come, and having come, my intention is not to abolish the law or the prophets, but rather to fulfill them. In Jesus' very first public, first statement of his public ministry, that's recorded in Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, Jesus said this, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. So Jesus was self-conscious. He understood who he was and what his mission was. And he says, I have come, and the time has come, and because I have come, the kingdom of God is near. When Jesus said then, I have come to fulfill the law, he was saying that all the predictions and all the law and all of the prophets and all of the lines of Old Testament witness, they all converge in Jesus. The day of expectation is over. The Messiah is here. He has been revealed. Jesus made this point in another incident in a very profound way. When he went into a synagogue, as was his practice, and the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 4, here's what happened. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Now, that is a quotation from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah 61. So Jesus goes into the synagogue, and often when there was one who was perceived to be prominent, rabbis, they were offered an opportunity to say something in the synagogue. And so they offered Jesus opportunity to say something. And he asks for and is given the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he unrolls it. Now, you unroll one of these scrolls, they don't have chapter and verse markings like our Bibles do. We put those in centuries later just so we could find stuff. Just so I could say, turn to Matthew 7 and look at this verse. But they weren't in there originally. So they're on a scroll and Jesus unrolls a scroll and it says, finding the place where it is written. <laughs> Jesus knows his Bible is what I'm telling you. And he goes right to the place that he wants to go to. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And then Isaiah 61 and Luke 4 says a number of other things that this one who would come, the Mashiach, the Messiah, would do. And after Jesus was done quoting from Isaiah 61, here's what Luke 4 says. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he said to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. Imagine being somebody in that synagogue. And this guy walks in and unrolls Isaiah right to the place he wants to read. And he says to them, I am that guy. The anointed one, the promised one, the Messiah is standing before you. And that's why the Apostle John, at the end of his gospel, showing the person and work of Jesus, at the very end, in fact, in the very last verse of the gospel of John, he says this, These things are written that you may know that Jesus is the Messiah. 
Jesus, friends, has inherent authority. When Jesus speaks, people are to listen. He has inherent authority because he's God. He has inherent authority because he's the Messiah. And he has inherent authority, I say in your outline, because he is judge. He has authority because he's God, because he's Messiah, and because he's judge. We already saw that all of those who have not trusted Christ as Savior will give an account before the judge, before Jesus himself. Verses 22 and 23 of this chapter say, as we saw a few weeks ago, many will say to me, to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now notice, friends, how self-centered this whole passage is. And I don't mean that in a negative way. If you talk about me as being self-centered or I talk about you as being self-centered, then that's a criticism of our character. But Jesus was self-centered. And he had every right and every reason to be self-centered because he was God and is God. And you think about being God just for a moment. What higher person, what higher thing do you have to aspire to other than who you already are? And everything is self-referential with you. You are independent of everyone and everything. And so Jesus, self-conscious of the fact that he is God and therefore is the judge of all of mankind, is self-centered in this passage. He says, people will say to me, But I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me. It's right for God to be self-centered. And here Jesus, God, says people will stand before me and they'll cry out to me and I will pronounce judgment and the verdict will be based on your relationship with me. And this is Jesus, a carpenter from Nazareth, who's making these claims. Nazareth was, as many of you know, as you've read through the first part of your New Testament, was, as we would say, on the wrong side of the tracks. Do you remember his disciples saying, Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus was a man, a carpenter from this town, Nazareth. He was fully human, the Bible teaches us. Therefore, he could be our substitute on the cross to pay for our sins. A full human without sin, the only human without sin. He was fully man. And to them, he looked like any other man. And from a town across the tracks, but he was unlike any other man. And why? Because although he was fully man, he was more than man. He is God, he's the Messiah. And he is every person's judge. That's why Jesus could speak with this authority. And so C.S. Lewis said it well. People often say a very foolish thing about Jesus. They say, I'm willing to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but do not accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level of a man who said he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is God the Son 
or else a madman or something worse. Jesus Christ is either a lunatic, a liar, or he is Lord. And that is your choice. And that's my choice. That's the only choice that Jesus gives us in this sermon. Now, friends, we sit here and stand here. Many of us affirm, yes, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Master. But if you were with us just a few weeks ago, do you remember me saying to you, we will all say that until the mastery, the Lordship of Jesus comes up against something hard. Something that we don't want to do. And Jesus commands something that is contrary to our bent and the way we want to go. And then suddenly the Lordship of Jesus diminishes. And Jesus' command and Jesus' law can then be flouted. Oh, dear friend, do you believe that Jesus is Lord? Do you really believe that Jesus is Lord? Then I want you to think about husband, wife, and I'm just saying this to the crowd. I have no one in mind in this group. But in a group this size, my experience has been that there are people who fit into the category I'm going to mention. I'm speaking to you, spouse, husband or wife, who has come to conclude I'm leaving this marriage. I've had it. He's not going to change. I've been unhappy in this marriage for a number of years. I'm throwing in the towel. And I ask you, is Jesus Lord? And does Jesus give you the right to do that? Where have you found in the word of Jesus his authorization to end what God has joined together? Let no man break apart. If you do not have that authorization from Jesus, then you need to lose that idea right now. There's some sinful pleasure that you indulge in, that you know is displeasing to the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet you want it, and you pursue it, and you spend money on it, and you sneak around for it. And I ask you, friend, is Jesus Lord? And you could fill out, we could fill out a long list of things, each of us with a different list of things that we want to pursue because they come up against the Lordship of Jesus. And now our claim and our profession to Jesus being Lord comes into question. And I give you this test. With that thing that you have been doing, with that thing that you're considering doing, that's contrary to the will of the one that you claim is the Lord. With that, then you say with your mouth to Jesus. Say, Jesus, and I can only say these as a fictitious quote. I can barely get these words out of my mouth. Jesus, you are not Lord. Can you say that to him? My guess is you cannot. I can barely do it to just make the quote. If you're a Christian, if the Holy Spirit abides within you, you cannot say, Jesus, you're not Lord. But hear this, 
Every time you do that action, that's what you're saying. And as you contemplate and you plot to end that marriage, that's what you're saying. Every time we sin against the command of Almighty God, the Lord, the Messiah, Jesus, that's what we're saying. It is time for God's church to stop playing church. It is time for the people who profess the name of Jesus to live that way. I pray for the day that the phone call that I get where someone says, I'm leaving, I've had it. I'm going to sin against the Word of God in some way or another. Oh, Lord Jesus, I pray for the day when that's the last time I receive a call like that. But too many times, people have heard the word of the Lord only to go out the following week and sin against everything that they heard. Oh, Lord God, have mercy. And so I ask you, friends, is Jesus Lord? If you believe that Jesus is Lord, he is calling you to forsake everything and everyone that is contrary to his command. And he lovingly gives you opportunity to do that. For some of you, it means you need to be saved. You need to enter in the narrow gate that Jesus spoke about. You need to come into the family of God that he bids you to come to based upon his blood and his righteous life, doing what you could not do for yourself. How do you know whether you need to be saved? Even if you've been a church goer, maybe you've been a church member, how do you know? The question is, has your life changed? And is there a visible and obvious difference in your life because of your professed relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? If the answer to that is no, you need to enter the family of God through the narrow gate. But he bids you to do that, and you will have opportunity in just a moment as we bow and pray together to receive Christ as your Savior and to bow before him as your Lord. And you don't make him Lord of your life. He is the Lord. You come to the Lord and you bow before the Lord. If you have come to Jesus and you struggle with sin like I do, like we all do, but you hate it, it's an acid test for whether or not you're a believer. You hate sin and you, wanna, you want to mortify it. You want to kill that sin. Praise God if that's the case for you, that you hate sin. Well, then he invites us to repent. So I say in your take-home truth, at the bottom of your outline, Jesus' teaching should move us to focus on eternal matters. Jesus' teaching should move us to focus on eternal matters. Now, we're going to bow, and as we do, if you need to come to the Lord Jesus Christ through the narrow gate that He is and follow Him on the narrow road that He spoke about earlier in this chapter, if you need to do that now because you've professed Jesus, maybe you're even a church member, but your life has not been changed, then here's what you do. You realize that you're a sinner. 
You recognize that Christ did what you could not do. He died having lived a perfect life. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. You repent of your sin. Lord, I'm going to follow you now with my life. I'm not going to go my way. I'm going to go your way. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. And you do that by praying from your heart to God. I won't pray that prayer for you. I won't lead you in that prayer. You have to pray from your heart to God. No magic formula, but acknowledging that you're a sinner, that he's the Savior, he's your God, he's your Lord, and you need him desperately, and you're going to follow him. And you can do that right now in this sacred moment. And for the rest, dear brothers and sisters, let's have a time of acknowledging to our Lord that there are times when we don't treat him as such. Oh, Lord, forgive us. And grant us, Lord, the ability today and this week to forsake those things and those people and those activities that are displeasing to you as our Lord. Let's bow together. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ, I say that to you Lord, I understand what it means and how profound it is. You are the Lord because you are God. Because you are God and because you are Master and Lord, you are the judge. And you are the pivotal person of all of history. And everything and everyone rises and falls on you. And so, Lord, we acknowledge that. And yet, Lord, at the same time, we acknowledge and confess our failure and our sin, as we profess you as Lord, but we don't live as if you are Lord. And so, Lord, we ask you to forgive us, those of us who are your people and who desire to mortify and put away sin. Forgive us of our sin. And thank you for your faithfulness and your justness, your righteousness to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit is moving on hearts As your word goes forward, I pray that your Holy Spirit is moving on perhaps some who have named your name, who have participated in your work, who have heard your word over and over again, perhaps have joined your church and served in it, but are among those who, if if their direction is not arrested now, will be those who say, Lord, Lord, did we not? So Lord, I pray that you would save some now. I ask you to call some out of the world, even if they're in the church, call them out of the world and to yourself. Lord, we will glorify your name as we have professions of faith from those who had previously made false professions. We will praise your name as they follow you in baptism. But Lord, we ask you to do this thing. We ask you to purify us individually, and as a result of purifying us individually, purify your church. This is to be God's holy people. Help us to see it, Lord, as the great privilege that it is to be called by your name. And to follow you, in essence, we're not really giving anything up. We're forsaking that which is worthless to pursue that which is of infinite value. Help me and help us to see it that way. And thereby follow you and obey you and please you and bring glory to your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.